Hello and welcome back to Intrepid Times. You're joining us at a very exciting moment because we're in the process of publishing and announcing the winners for our recent Romance on the Road travel writing competition. Now, this was our fifth or sixth travel writing competition. We've been doing them for a number of years. Um, it was our most popular. We had over 800 people participate and register, of whom over 300 actually followed through and submitted stories. And of those 300 stories, we selected four finalists, including one winner. And that was a challenge. So the quality of stories was extremely high overall, and the theme and the way people interpreted it was very broad. So whether or not you participated in this competition, what I thought we'd do, Jennifer and I will do with this podcast, is kind of bring you behind the scenes a little bit. What does it take, what does it feel like, rather, to sit from the editor's desk, look at all these stories that have come in, evaluate them, and based on all of these stories that people have so clearly put their heart and soul into them, how do you choose a winner? And if you're a writer who is interested in participating in writing competitions and wants insights on how your writing may look from that perspective, what we're going to speak about may, may help you understand your work in that way. And I think one thing to really stress is that this is subjective. We're not sitting here with a mathematical formula. Did you tick this box? Did you not? We have, having been doing this for a number of years, um, we did our first writing competition almost four years ago um, through Intrepid Times, and Jennifer and I have edited and consulted on other competitions for other publications. We we have quite a strong sense of criteria that is about the kind of sentence by sentence level, about the overall story structure, and about certain ways that many things that we've spoken about in previous masterclasses are fulfilled, the kind of tactical stuff. And that's there in our minds. But the most important thing is, did the story move us? And does it answer the question of the theme? And does it move us? And with those two criteria, we whittle it down, whittle it down, and select our shortlist. And what I find very interesting, and one of the reasons why I, I believe Jennifer and I make a great team, is that, Jen, you and I, out of 300 stories, we did not consult until the very end. And you and I both came up with the exact same shortlist of uh, five stories. Yeah, I thought that that was super interesting. Um, I think that was the first time we've done that. Um, we usually do overlap quite a bit, but this I think was the first time where, you know, we both chose kind of our top list and they were exactly the same. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that, you know, just over time, we've gotten a better sense of, you know, what to look for in stories. And we've been able to kind of get closer and closer to just understanding, you know, what, is making these stories really powerful. What's going to grab a reader? You know, what's playing well with the theme? You know, all these things. Um, it does take time, you know, even for us as editors to feel that out. Um, you know, there have been competitions where we've had to go kind of back and forth, kind of, you know, debate a little bit about stories. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting that this time that didn't happen. <laughs> um, and that was really fun to see. Um, you know, like you said, the quality of stories in the competitions is always so high. Um, people really put their best foot forward with these stories, um, which makes the competition so much fun for us. because um, We do get to read a lot of really great writing, um, you know, getting it down to, you know, the top three, four or five um, is always a challenge. Um, and, you know, I think that this particular competition was a little bit more challenging even 
you know, because of the theme. Um, people really ran with the theme, which we loved to see. Um, I think it was a little bit tricky for writers um, because, you know, the theme romance on the road, you know, people hear romance and immediately their mind, I think, goes to a very specific place. Um, and so I think we saw a lot of people struggling to, you know, distinguish between, you know, how much personal to give and how much travel to give. Um, and, you know, the people who ended up being the finalists, you know, I think had a really strong sense of travel in their stories while still sticking to the theme of romance, you know, in very creative ways. You know, not all of the stories that we ended up picking as finalists were, you know, about love, you know, between two people, um, which I think is maybe the immediate response when people see romance. Um, there were a lot of different interpretations of the theme and, you know, the stories that ended up being finalists had a good sense of that without taking it overboard. Um, so, yeah, I think that this particular theme was super interesting. I think it was tricky for people. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, Nathan. I know you have some thoughts on the theme. Yeah, so romance is definitely something that is almost by definition romantic, the love of two people um, who want to, in some ways, go beyond uh, beyond a friendship with each other. But we, we were very clear in the description of the competition that people read before submitting in our submission guidance, that we were taking a very broad interpretation of romantic. Romantic in the sense that a, a scene can be romantic, or a song can be, or a mood, or an atmosphere could be. And really, we for the word romantic, you can kind of read love love for a place or a person and we could have called it love on the road but i just couldn't resist we couldn't resist the uh, the alliteration mm -hmm. and we really wanted to see what people did with it and, and it so happens that with our ultimate four selections um we've published one that is romancing the ice uh, a wonderful story by jana dietrich that uh, apologies jana if i'm mispronouncing your name that is about the romance of a scene, a place, which is set in Antarctica. We've just published one 10 minutes before this call, another finalist by Stuart O'Brien, that is about a more traditional romantic love. Uh, it's the story of his, um, a, a just a romance in the classic sense of the word uh, that he had whilst traveling in Mexico City. Um, we won't spoil the suspense for the remaining two stories that will be published over the following two weeks. Um, but one of them at least has the story of a friendship, a very uh, loving friendship with an undertone of a great loss. And these are all ways that you, you can have the pathway to romance. So keeping the theme broad and allowing people to do with it what they will is high risk. We found that with really clean themes, so for example, um, we had our wrong turns travel writing competition a few years ago. Pretty much every wrong turn submission, they weren't all brilliant, but pretty much every wrong turn submissions was a serviceable travel story because the very nature of that theme, take write us about a time that you took a wrong turn whilst traveling and then ended up being a significant and important travel experience. The very nature of that theme is a three act structure, isn't it? It's set up mistake resolution. So embedded within that you can almost not write an incomprehensible travel story 
whilst adhering to that theme. So we're taking a, we took more of a risk with romance on the road, but uh, I would say it pays off. Uh, people can see that themselves for the two finalists we've already published, and the winner uh, is also spectacular. So people really rose to the occasion, and everyone who submitted, like, congratulations. The amount of emotional labor that clearly went into these stories was impressive. And you can kind of tell, can't you, Jen, as a judge, whether someone has written the story for the competition specifically, whether the theme kind of inspired them and they, they sat down and wrote it, or whether it's a story that someone's had on their Google Drive for months, has been submitting it to everything and is just kind of hoping that eventually it will click into place. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, there were definitely some, not many, but a couple, you know, that just didn't take the theme at all into account. Um, and those are, you know, kind of very obvious ones that people had just kind of written and like, oh, it kind of maybe fits the theme. Let me try it. Um, so, yeah, I would I would encourage people to be careful about that. Um, you know, we're not mad when we get those kind of submissions, but it, it is just a little bit annoying um, that, you know, we are looking for something that does have a really strong sense of the theme. Um, so if it doesn't, you know, it's probably not going to end up being a finalist. Um, yeah, and you know, I you talked about Yana's story, and I just want to mention, you know, really quickly that, you know, that is very much, you know, a romantic scene that she's exploring. And she does sneak in, you know, I think it's maybe just one or two paragraphs where she talks about a very brief, you know, kind of traditional romance that she did have in Antarctica. Um, so she kind of layered different types of romance into that story, which I really loved. Um, you know, she was playing with the theme in a number of different ways. Um, and I think that that made that story really strong. Um, you know, other people interpreted it in different ways and, you know, it all worked. Um, but, you know, that is a really cool thing that she did where she explored, you know, she did have this, you know, very brief relationship in Antarctica, um, but the story wasn't about that relationship. Um, you know, the story was about her kind of, you know, quote unquote, romance with, you know, just the scene that she sees every time she steps out of, you know, her cabin or the kitchen where she's working. Um, and then she, you know, she just kind of has like this couple little paragraphs for like she mentions this, this love that did, you know, bloom for a few moments and then kind of disappeared. And, you know, I want to, you know, just encourage people to be creative in the ways that they do this. Um, you know, the interpretation is a really fun thing to to play with. You know, one of the finalists that we haven't yet published, and I'm not going to spoil it too much, um, but she talks about, you know, observing, you know, a sea creature while she's swimming. And there's this kind of like romantic moment where she kind of falls in love, um, you know, not in the traditional sense, but, you know, there's this sense of romance still. I mean, I hope that people enjoy, you know, all the different interpretations that they end up seeing. Um, but yeah, it is very obvious when people have, you know, read the description of the competition and have kind of sat down with that idea in mind and written a unique story for it. Um, I think it was also very obvious when people kind of used their first instinct and wrote that story, um, which isn't a bad thing. I think that we've, you know, you and I, Nathan, have discussed a lot about you know, just getting words onto a page. Um, that's kind of the most important first step, just kind of get your ideas out there and see what happens. Um, but then after that comes the kind of polishing and the editing to see, 
you know, is this really sticking to the theme? Is this, you know, got, has this got a good story arc? You know, all these things. And, you know, I think it was also very obvious when we read stories that were kind of clearly first drafts. I don't know if you got that sense as well. Absolutely. So what we're going to do now is we're going to speak about a few of the things that the really strong stories did well, and also a few of the things that the, the less uh, developed stories fell short on. And if you're someone who's listening to this, who submitted a story um, that hasn't been selected, and you're thinking, darn it, I didn't do this, or darn it, I made that mistake. Don't beat yourself up. The The mere thing, as Yen was saying, the most important thing is to, to write, to get the thoughts on paper. And that's a win. Like you, two of the most profound things in life are travel and romance. You manage to synthesize the two of them into a 1200 word coherent piece of writing. Congratulations, like well done. That is not easy. Um, so we're going to speak about some specifics that can help you really elevate that. But already, I just want to say like, that's awesome. Like very, very, very well done. Um, you spoke about unpolished drafts. It's quite amusing. I can totally relate as someone who's been a professional writer in one capacity or another for, for the better part of 10 years. Now, uh, to the experience, we've seen this by a number of people, uh, no hard feelings if this is you, it's very understandable, who send in a draft and then an hour or two hours later, they go, no, wait, that's not the real draft. This is the real draft. And then maybe a day later, no, 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 actually, this one is the real draft. And you see them piling on the inbox. We always do our best to be nice and read the last, like the most uh, developed one that you sent through. Don't worry. Um, that's very sweet, isn't it? And it represents something, though, that if you want to elevate your writing to a professional level, you probably want to make the draft that you submit the final one. And I just, we didn't prejudice against anyone who did this. But it just so happens that none of the selected stories were people who did that, who sent in multiple iterations. They all sent through the ones that they followed through with. And we didn't penalize anyone for doing that, but the fact that you're doing it probably means that your process could use a little bit of polish, doesn't it? So how do you have that objectivity on a piece? Because once you finish writing something, particularly something that you're excited about, you're, you want to get it out there. You're like, boom, I've done it. And you want that dopamine hit of having sent it off. And then your emotional state relaxes, you go for a walk, it's you sleep, it's the next day, and you come back to it. And you're like, oh no, I have to change this, I have to change that. And you do. And then you send it off again, and then maybe that process happens again. So as much as possible, try and give yourself that distance before you send it off. There's kind of a psychological mechanism that seems to be triggered by the act of sending it off. How can you trigger that without doing so? One is to simply imagine it. Imagine that you've sent it off. How do you feel? Another trick I like to do is I like to change the format. So, for example, reading a document in PDF form um, gives it a sense of formality that can allow you to have a bit of distance from it. In the old days, uh, back when people had printers, printing it out was a useful mechanism. I don't know, Jen, do you have any tricks for getting distance on your own writing before sending it off? Um, I do. I like to read paragraphs out loud. Um, that tends to help me a lot. Um, not only just like kind of finding mistakes, but just getting a sense of, you know, how the language is flowing. Um, I also, I think it's really good to call on friends and family to just give it a once over. Um, they'll usually catch things that you won't catch yourself. Um, so if you have access to somebody who's just like willing to give it a quick read, I think that's a really good thing to do. Um, but yeah, I usually just sitting on it for a couple days without looking at it 
can be a really good way to get enough distance that when you come back to it, you can kind of see what needs to, you know, have more work. Great technique, and and you never feel truly satisfied, do you? I mean, I look at, I'm in the process now of, um, I have a book coming out in September in the US, UK, and, and June, New Zealand at Untethered, and I'm in the process of doing some media about it, and I'm having to remind myself what's actually in the book because I wrote it last year, and I'm reading over it now. I'm like, how did the editors let me get away with this? Jen, you're one of the editors. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's, that's part of the that's always part of the process and with short form writing it's 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 a lot easier but yeah once that email's gone off uh it's off so try and scare yourself before scaring yourself another commonality that i noticed i don't know if you shared my opinion on this jen but it was quite interesting we, we had stories in this romance on the road competition from i think it's safe to say every continent given that we've ticked off Antarctica. Um, we've had stories of, you know, the cliche romance in Paris, and we've had stories of war-torn, daring midnight escapes under basically gunfire. And one thing that I found was the writing itself seems to matter actually more than the story. I was more moved by the cliche Paris story if it's beautifully written and you feel empathy for the characters and there's tension there and you understand why this is so much more than it seems than I was by the kind of daring gun raid that was written not badly. Um, we had plenty of stories like that. They, they weren't badly written, but that wasn't written with the same level of artistry and skill as the more simple stories. Yeah, I did. I did find the same. Um, and I think maybe some writers tend to lean on the fact that the story itself is quite interesting and maybe they don't pay as much attention to the actual writing. <clears throat> um, I don't know if that may just be, you know, an unconscious thing that people tend to do. Um, you know, even if the story does kind of naturally have a really strong arc and a lot of drama and, you know, maybe a lot of romance and, um, you know, a lot of key climax moments, that doesn't mean that you get to ignore, you know, good writing skills, you know, using really descriptive language, you know, using metaphor, you know, making sure the story flows well, making sure it's focused. Um, you know, they're maybe the best combination would be, you know, a really interesting story that is really well written. But, you know, you can have, like you said, a kind of, you know, quote unquote, typical story, you know, something maybe that we have seen before. But if the writing is really well done, you know, that's still going to move us in ways that's going to catch our attention. Um, and, you know, there are things that you can do to make, you know, a maybe not, you know, inherently interesting story feel more powerful. Um, and we'll talk about a couple of those things, I think, in a bit. Um, but, yeah, I definitely did find the same um, you know, there was one um, that, you know, the personal story was incredibly emotionally powerful. Um, you know, it was about um, a woman who, you know, they recently found out that her husband, um, you know, had a terminal cancer. Um, and so they, you know, take this trip because they kind of know it's maybe their last opportunity to do so before, you know, he has to go through all the treatments. Um, 
And, you know, that story, that backstory itself is a very powerful thing and can pull you in. Um, the thing you then have to do is follow it up with a strong sense of travel and place. And, you know, I think that if you start with a really good base and build up from there, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, another thing that I think that we should mention, Nathan, is the way that, you know, the stronger stories, they allowed the backstory to come through slowly. Um, they didn't give it to you all at once. And so it kind of kept you interested and curious about, you know, how this was going to go. Um, the story that we just published today um, by Stu O'Brien, I think he did this really, really well. Um, where you, at the beginning, you kind of get the sense that the person he's with, you know, they're kind of going through like a weird romantic moment. You're not really sure what has happened. Um, and then as the story goes on, he gives you know, little bits and pieces, um, kind of letting you know maybe how long it's been, you know, how they're feeling, how they've kind of interacted on this trip. Um, and then, you know, towards the, you know, second half of the story, there's this really interesting uh, moment where he speaks with a local and the local kind of has this, you know, uncanny insight into, you know, how Stu himself is feeling and, you know, how the person he's with is feeling. And gives you even more insight because, you know, he doesn't deny it. Um, so he's really clever in the way that he played with the backstory. And, you know, that's all intertwined with a really strong sense of, you know, what is Mexico City? You know, what is he seeing? The history. Um, you know, he's, they're kind of like going on these tours of the city. Um, but, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't overwhelm you with either the personal or the travel. It's all really well integrated. Um so yeah, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that one. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because a lot of stories that we saw, in general, travel writing stories, but something about this competition really brought it out. I noticed it a lot, is that the entire first paragraph, maybe even first two paragraphs, was just backstory, context. And it was, you know, I'm, this is me, and this is who I am, and this is my life, and this is why I'm in this moment that I'm in. And that's overwhelming for two reasons. One is that we probably don't know you. So as strangers on the internet reading this on a website or in a book, we don't know why we should care yet. You ha haven't given us a reason to do so. And the other is it's just a huge amount of facts and data to take in at once. So drip feeding it as student and his story, using it purposefully in hand in hand with the travel story that you're telling that is powerful and you pay attention to your latest netflix show i mean great dramas do this really well uh this is hbo not netflix but succession if you watch that notice how they give you character information gradually they drip feed it there's this one about halfway through the first season where you see the patriarch logan and you see he's climbing out of a swimming pool and you see that he's got scars on his back and like, oh, maybe, you know, he was abused in his youth. And that's one of the reasons why he's such an asshole. It's like, <laughs> it's more intriguing if you drip feed it out that way. And in a short form travel story is different. You have less tools at your disposal, fewer tools than you would in a Netflix drama. But the same principles apply. Why are you giving this piece of information? Why does the audience care? And how can you drip feed it in a way that works with your travel 
with the thrust of your narrative. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And, you know, kind of along those same lines, I think that it was really easy for people to, you know, start not only with their whole kind of backstory, but then to kind of carry that through to the very end, you know, so it ended up being where they were trying to tell the entire story, you know, quote unquote. And that meant that it just wasn't focused enough. So they were trying to, you know, maybe somebody went to Edinburgh and for a week and they tried to tell about everything that happened during that week. And, you know, that isn't a focused story. That's gonna be really difficult to make it feel important because you're giving the reader a lot of information. Um, you know, just like we talked about, you're giving them a lot of information in that first paragraph. If you give them a lot of information throughout, that's also not going to work. Um, you really need to hone in on, you know, maybe one experience or one moment. Um, we have seen stories that have kind of covered a few days and done it successfully. Um, it is more difficult to do. Um, you know, the most successful stories and the ones that ended up being finalists this time, um, you know, I'm just like quickly going over them in my head. They were all within maybe just like a day. There was one that was just within like an hour. Um, the I think, Romance of the Ice is an interesting exception. Um, yeah, that one I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah. to, to, to every rule, there's an exception, but it's an exception done well. And in Yana's story, she didn't by any means attempt to say everything that happened while she was in Antarctica. She focused on that one particular aspect and how that intertwined with this little actual romance, but also just how it made her feel and how significant it was and how it lent magic to every moment, which is quite interesting because the scope, in some ways in a short form, you need something short, a narrow scope. So if you're going to talk about a big thing, one narrow lens, even though it's a beautiful and vast lens, but it's also one specific aspect, the ice, that's a cool window into a big thing. And if you're going to talk about a small thing, that's easier. You've got a tight, contained story. And with one story, the one I think you're referring to that only took an hour, there's years of personal backstory drip fed throughout that one hour of narrative. It's just not all piled at you uh, at the start. Yeah, right. And I think that, you know, Yana's story, for example, since we've published that one, people can read it. That one is interesting because you know, she gives you a lot over, you know, in time-wise. I mean, it's not just one day she's talking about. But she's also not saying every single thing, every single thing she did every day. You know, I woke up and then I had to go, you know, wash the dishes. And then, you know, in the afternoon, I finally had time to go out and look at the ice and stare at the stars. And, you know, that's not how that story reads. Um, we don't actually get a lot of, you know, what her daily life really looks like in Antarctica. We get the important parts of, you know, what matters to this particular story that she's trying to tell. Um, and that's, you know, looking at the ice, <laughs> which, you know, could maybe make for a difficult story to write because, you know, how do you make that interesting? But she did. Um, and that was something we were really impressed by. Um, she made this experience of just like standing outside and looking at Antarctica feel really powerful. Um, and, you know, she mentions a couple of different times where she's looking out at the ice. And that's like we said, it's over a couple of days and maybe even I think she was maybe in Africa for a couple of months, she references. But, you know, it feels contained. Um, it, she is very much in control 
of that story. She's not letting it, you know, kind of, you know, draw aside the lines. Um, she has a very strong sense of where her story is and where the focus lies, and she sticks to that. Um, so yeah, I think that your point about scope, I think, is maybe more important than you know timeline necessarily. Um, yeah, something really important to keep in mind. I agree. That sense of control and knowing what the story is, and you don't always know that. I mean, every writer works differently, but I often don't know what that is until I've tried out a couple of drafts and then it will come together. Then you'll figure out the fulcrum upon that everything rests on, but figure that out um, through whatever process you have. Maybe you will know in the beginning, maybe it will hit you, but that disciplined approach, and this, this applies in particular to short form travel writing, because you have to fit a lot in just a just a few words and hold someone's attention which is no mean feat i mean how do you get someone to read something for fun that is not that is not a recipe and they won't make more money or lose weight or whatever they're just going to read it because it's beautiful how do you get someone to do that in 2023 it's not easy that's why we do these podcasts that's why we hold these competitions that's why we celebrate those who who can pull it off. Um, one thing not to do, I, we, we really did, Jen and I spoke before this podcast, is we really didn't want this to be a don't, don't, don't uh, kind of thing, because that's that's not nice to listen to, and that's not that's not why we're here. You know, we're here because we love it. We love the beautiful pieces of writing that come, and even even the, so many pieces that weren't selected were so moving and wonderful. And there's, there's a rare privilege of being an editor, is that in some ways you get to read things that that no one else ever will. And there's something to be had and gained and appreciated in everything that comes through. The, there are there are a couple of habits that are excessively common, and I think it would be worth raising here so that people can just be aware of them and that might increase their chances of being published. And one th we've spoken about a lot of them in different masterclasses. We won't repeat ourselves too much. Obviously, being disciplined about how much you use the eye. Obviously, uh, as they say, avoiding cliches like the plague. Some of our writers can speak in cliches to the cows come home, um, but we definitely want to um, try and be as original as possible and get to the core of the point rather than using a stale phrase that someone else has come up with. It's your experience. Use your words. But there's a unique new thing that came up over and over again in stories just for this competition, and it must be a nature of the theme, and that is people would often slip in their personal philosophy, and it would almost always start with the phrase they say. And they say love is like a rose upon a mountain. It's beautiful but lonely, and I've always believed in my life that there are certain moments where romance strikes and there would be this philosophical treatise um on romance uh, i don't know about you jen but i, I found that quite uh, a little bit off-putting especially when it was uh, excessive yeah i i agree um i think that it was easy to do that with this theme like you mentioned just because you know romance does lend itself to that um you know there are is so much writing around romance and love um that i think it can be easy to try to put your own spin on you know what romance means and then to try to make that very obvious for a reader you know what you believe romance or love looks like um that may have been an attempt to make sure the story was 
you know, fitting in with the theme. That may have been something that writers were trying to do just to make sure, you know, this is really, you know, a story about romance. Um, maybe they just weren't sure. And so they wanted to make it more obvious. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the more successful stories were able to offer their perspective on romance without stating it directly. Um, you know, we got a really good sense of, you know, in Stu's story, for example, um, we understand, you know, his struggle with that complicated romance. We, he doesn't need to tell us that it was complicated, right? I don't think he ever once says that. It's just the way that he tells the story, we're getting his, you know, kind of underlying opinion just from his writing, which is really, really powerful. Um, so I think, yeah, philosophizing, um, it's a it's a dangerous thing to do. I have seen it be successful, but usually with themes that aren't quite as um, common. Um, I think that if you can offer perspective on something that, you know, isn't as talked about, maybe that can work better. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, romance is one of those things that's easy to slip into, you know, cliches when you start philosophizing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's such a good point that you made that people might be trying to clearly justify that the story fits with the theme and, and make that case. And that's one of the many bad habits that they teach you in high school, isn't it? You labor the point. You'd be like, this is the question. And by answering the question, I am providing an answer to the question so that lazy examiners can take a box and <laughs> so see that you've met the criteria. And there are, I'm not saying you should never express an idea explicitly. Um, but generally, as you say, it's best if that worldview is implied or revealed through your voice, through your attitude, through what you choose to leave in and what you don't, um, through what you leave in and through what you leave out, rather, because you are, your opinion and worldview is evident in how you have boiled down this extraordinarily rich cocktail of experience into just 1400 words. How can your worldview not be evident in that? So you don't need to explicitly state it. You shouldn't have to. If you feel that your worldview is not apparent through the story, maybe you want to take a step back and, and write a second draft. Right. And, you know, I think it's also important to just be aware of, you know, what publication you're writing for. Um, you know, we're a travel publication. So, you know, the personal story uh, is important, but the travel is you know, more important. Um, you know, the personal needs to kind of serve the travel, not the other way around. Um, and so, you know, philosophizing is kind of on the personal side. And so it may just not be a good fit, you know, depending on the publication you're looking at. 100%. Um, okay, I don't want to dwell too much on the don'ts. That, that's a good one to take away from and take away with. And I, I think it's worth thinking about. I, what's a kind of a quirky observation, Jen, of just something kind of not necessarily good or bad, just interesting that you found cropping up again? For me, it was the image of the sunrise. A lot of stories began with the image of a sunrise. It's logical for a story to begin with that because it's the beginning of a day, but it's not something I'd noticed a lot at all in the many thousands of just travel stories we've reviewed outside of this competition but for this one the sunrise seemed to kick off um i don't know why that is maybe it's a literally romantic image was there anything like that that kind of jumped out at you um 
I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I do I do recall seeing a lot of sunrises and sunsets. I, mean, I think those are just kind of naturally uh, romantic scenes, so it was easy. Um, but one thing that we did see a lot that I thought was really interesting was poetry, <laughs> um, which isn't necessarily good or bad. I think it was the way that it was used. Um, we haven't seen that as much in other competitions, I think. Um, you know, we got, I think, more just plain poetry submissions this time around. Um, you know, people just literally sending in poems instead of stories. And maybe, you know, I think poetry is kind of a naturally romantic thing. And so that was maybe just kind of an obvious choice. Um, but I do want to, you know, talk about how poetry can be used. Um, because, you know, we, we're not a poetry publication. We're not going to, you know, look at poetry. Um, but for people who are poets and maybe are interested in writing travel stories, you know, poetic language does have its place. Um, you know, poets are generally very good at, you know, metaphor, at descriptive language, um, imagery, and those things are all great for travel stories. Um, those can make writing really powerful and really moving. Um, you know, Yana's story, I think in particular, did the kind of poetic language really well. It's not a poem, and she never inserts a poem into that story. But you can feel the just kind of flow and, you know, the way that the writing is just kind of naturally beautiful. I know beautiful is kind of an overused word. Um, but that story, I think, you know, the descriptions really were just beautiful. They were beautifully written. Um, and, you know, it had this strong sense of, you know, a poetic feel. Um, you know, romance is a theme that I think you can play a lot with that. And I think that it was interesting to see the ways that people did that. So... That's not to say that, you know, poets don't have their place in, you know, nonfiction writing, because I think they actually can make that leap. Um, I think that it's just important to, you know, recognize that there is a time and a place for it. Yeah, agreed. There's a difference between poetic and poetry, right? And if, if you're being a little bit flowery with your language and you're, you're using the, the tropes and techniques of poetry, but it works, absolutely. But if you're sneaking in a bit of free verse or a few rhyming couplets sometimes it can almost feel like the travel story is just like a trojan horse and what you really want is to get your poetry published and by the way like i read poetry for fun i'm not a poet but i love poetry i have a huge love and respect and admiration for it we're just not a poetry publication um it reminds me of i come from a, i've spoken about my background a little on other podcasts but i come from a publishing family and there's a story that my grandfather used to tell which he ran a non-fiction publishing house in the southwest of england many 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 decades ago and he hears a a lot of people like us would send him non-non-fiction pieces of writing that obviously they would have to reject and i'm sure he would have complained about it loudly over the dinner table one night because one day he hears a scuffle breaking out down the driveway and he comes there and my father, six or seven years old at the time, was engaged in almost physically fighting off a, a man in a suit trying to put an envelope in the letterbox. And my grandson says, what's going on here? And he says, Dad, he's trying to give us his poetry. <laughs> so it's, it's, I have a long family history of people trying to force poetry uh, on us. So we love poetry <laughs> and we, we admire it, but it's just not, we're just not the right publication. Yeah, and I think that... You know, one other thing that I saw, maybe more than other competitions, which I thought was really interesting, is there were more people writing in the 
um, third person, you know, using he or she or they instead of I. Um, I'm not sure if that was them, you know, trying to tell somebody else's story, maybe because they knew somebody who, you know, had a really um, powerful romance. Um, there was even one that actually, actually, the story was quite strong. Um, she used you. She worked in the second person. Um, you know, I think that, again, not necessarily good or bad. I think that we saw people playing more with using other points of view. Um, I don't know if, if that struck you as well, Nathan. Yeah, I wonder if that might, I'm just speculating here, but I wonder if it might be self-protection in a way, and that like romance can be so personal, and especially if it doesn't work out, so painful that writing about it in the third person or using a slightly removed uh, pronoun or perspective might allow easier access to that. that that's, that's just pure speculation. There's been so many novel things that have come out of this theme, haven't there? Things that we've never seen before. Yeah, um, and, you know, speaking to that, you know, with the point of view and perspective, you know, the way that people were defining their self, I think was really interesting. You know, I think some people were writing stories that maybe they hadn't fully processed themselves, which I think, you know, comes with the theme. You know, I think romance can be a very complicated, difficult thing sometimes if, you know, it didn't end well or if, you know, it was a romance that wasn't returned, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and so the way people were reflecting and maybe processing while they were writing, I think was also a fascinating thing that we saw in some of these stories. And, you know, it's something I think that we should just talk about for a second, because, you know, the way, you know, the eye is always really important in a story. You know, they're, they're, you're the one that experienced this thing. You're the one telling the story. And I think that it's also really important to recognize when to pull the self back a little bit and, you know, when to really define what that self is. You know, how do you make people understand where you're coming from and who you are without, you know, hitting them over the head with it? Um, you know, I think that, you know, I'm going to use Jana's story again just because we have published her story. Um, you know, we get the sense that she is, you know, adventurous and, you know, has this, you know, kind of poetic sense of the world and, you know, really likes to, you know, take risks. You know, she runs outside kind of in like her tank top, you know, she doesn't even take the time to throw a coat on, you know, this, this gives a sense of who she is as a person. Um, she doesn't have to tell you these things. And so we get to know her just a little bit, you know, just enough to help us connect with her. Um, I think that, you know, in a lot of the stories we saw, there were people that were trying to kind of put their whole self out there kind of immediately, um, you know, and in ways that, you know, were a little bit overwhelming for the reader. Um, you know, I think that people have an innate desire to kind of want to be known. And, you know, sometimes that means that they try to describe themselves, you know, kind of in great detail, just with this idea that the reader kind of needs to know who they are in order to connect with them. Um, and that isn't the case. I think that it's really important to understand that you can give them just a little bit of yourself, you know, just enough for them to, you know, project the rest. Um, because readers have imagination. Readers have creativity. They can fill in the blanks that you leave for them. Um, so they don't need to know every single thing about you. I think that if you just give them, you know, a few important details, that's enough for a reader in general. Um, I don't know if you feel the same, Nathan. 
Yeah, and this might be a useful kind of way to bring some of this together as we approach the end of this episode, which is that a lot of the mistakes that we see or the things that we see that um, didn't really work might have represented a lack of confidence, a lack of confidence in the writer and also a lack of confidence in the reader's ability to grasp what they're saying and why it's important. The explicit philosophizing, the overuse of backstory condensed at the beginning, the kind of overwriting. And that can represent in a way a, a real need to just like, are they going to get it? Are they, this is really important to me. And the reason why it's really important to me is this, this, and this. And look, and I also think like, you've got to get this. And that's understandable, especially with a topic as sensitive as love, romance, but pulling back a little and just trusting that if you write it clearly and with discipline, if you leave out what does not have to be put in, the readers will get it. Trust in the readers. Yeah, and I think it's okay that if different readers have different takes on stories. I think that sometimes writers feel like everybody has to have the same interpretation, and that's not the case. Um, every single reader is going to be different in what they're bringing to the story with them when they read it. And that's okay. It's okay to let them have their own perspective and interpret it in the way that serves them best. And I think that the you know most successful writers will allow the reader to do what they need to do with the story when they read it. Um, it's not to say that you don't give them anything. You just, you know, give them enough for them to, to, you know, make their own interpretations and have their own perspective with what you're offering. Exactly. And for me, I think that wraps it up. Um, this was a lot of fun to, to talk about. Um, it was quite an experience going through all of the stories really just as I, I said before, like there was something worthwhile in all of them, even though we couldn't, we can only select a percentage, uh, about barely 1% of that of those that came through. Um, huge thank you to everyone who participated. We're very excited to bring you one more finalist in the ultimate winner over the next two weeks. And we'll definitely have another writing competition soon. So hopefully this uh, has been useful. Thanks, everyone. It's been great talking about this and uh, keep sending in your writing. We love reading it. We do. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, everybody.